0: Hello and welcome to Explain Me. My name is Patty Johnson,
1: and I'm William Powhida.
0: Today we're here to talk about the art fairs, which uh, happened just last week in New York. We are also here to talk about rampant art exploitation, um, of which there has been uh, an article written recently in the Baffler by um, Dana Copel, um, and we. Uh, have a whole bunch of different things to talk about surrounding these issues. Um, William, do you want to add uh, anything to that?
1: I mean, uh, you know, we we went to the art fairs and we're going to talk about them, um, but I I, I want to point out a a tweet by, artist and educator Chloe Bass, who maybe will sort of frame some of the difficulty about trying to talk about the return of art fairs in our Delta, you know, period of the pandemic. Um, These fairs also happened on, you know, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I had a really surreal experience navigating independent and a a political art show called Parallel Constructions at the St. George's Church Bar that I can talk about. But literally as the sort of fair week was unfolding, Chloe on Twitter said, "'Surely I am not the only person experiencing confusion that many of the people who expressed concern demands hope that the parenthetical art and parentheses art world would need to and or actually change as a result of the ongoing global pandemic are also the people live reporting their art fair visits today, and I have an immense amount of respect for Chloe and her practice. But I, I sort of read that that tweet as a, a sort of gently couched accusation of hypocrisy, um, you know, sort of couched in bewilderment about the fact that people are returning to to art fairs, and you know, I think that's something that you know we can discuss because I know Patty, you you tweeted early on that. Um, it was great to go back and see people and talk about art and be back around uh, this thing that we do, even if we don't love the fair format. It's a place to kind of come together, and we haven't been able to do that in this way in over a year and a half. And you know, I think Harag wrote, you know, about how much how much work was done during the pandemic, and spring break was a place to see all of this kind of intense, you know, artistic production. Um, that, that we weren't able to see at galleries or, you know, experience the same way online. So, uh, you That's
0: know, it's true. But I do think that like um, and, and uh, I'm happy to talk about some of the um, more positive feelings that I that I had related to that. But I feel like there was something embedded in that tweet, too, that um, that you had talked about um, in our preparation for the, for this episode that um belied a kind of um well belied's the wrong word but like um underneath it there was something there was something of a duality rather than a hypocrisy necessarily a kind of balancing that we have to do um which i i think will probably become um based on our conversations and everything we have in our notes will probably be the uh Will will be the underpinning for this episode. Which um, for everyone here, just a disclaimer: this this is a fairly loosely organized one. Um, maybe the way to start though um, is to actually lead in with um, Max Lakin's uh, uh, I Lankin? Um, Hopefully, I'm not saying his name too wrong. Um, what he wrote for Art Forum, because I think that sort of summarizes. Uh, a lot of what I had been um, saying while I was at the armory um, and it's just written very well. Um, and it talks about negotiating these things. Um, so he writes, the armory show is now two sites removed from its namesake location, having abandoned the vertigo-inducing peers for the ver- vertigo-inducing Javits Center, a, n- a non-place like that no one likes. And that two months ago was a mass vaccination center. And last year was filled with rows of cots, conscripted as an emergency field hospital. But considering that the peers were basically falling into the river anyway, and the last installment is now acknowledged to have been, basically been a super spreader event, everyone agreed that it was time for a change. And just to add to this, one of the things that um, I had thought like i had talked to a dealer about was just how um it was nice to walk into the javits center and not have to work like walk through pigeon shit so this is definitely something on people's mind well yeah
1: yeah and I, i i think i
0: was you know when we first
1: talked about that and about max's piece you know to go back to kind of Chloe's tweet about the the hoped for changes in the art world. Really what changed this year was the venues, you know, independent moved to another space at the Cipriani, which was very luxurious and gave me some vibes from the hotel in the shining. I don't know, you know, there was there was something happening there. You know, the Javits Center was the new venue for Armory with all its baggage and associations. Um, And then Spring Break, you know, sort of return to a previous site. So, you know, there was...
0: Which it often doesn't do. So that's sort of interesting, too. In its own way, that is a form of change.
1: I thought um, Lankin's piece was fine. And it actually is kind of the, what was really interesting about it, and I think it's it's something for us to kind of think about and probably uh, almost a template for our own discussion, is that he sort of sets this all up with, like, The context and what's happening around these art fairs and what's been happening through the pandemic, but also black lives matter, I mean there's so much political uh, you know sort of strife happening. um, That that by the time he gets to the artwork it's you know just a few names, (laughs) so I don't want to give anyone the false impression that we are going to be diving deep into the art fairs I don't think there's that much to dive into as far as art works I mean you know we've got some people to talk about and things we saw but uh yeah a lot of my experience um it it felt very different this year you know for, for one reason or another
0: I mean I think understanding the art is um like to do that you have to understand the context which is why a lot like so much time is um spent sort of setting this stuff up. I mean, he writes, art fairs persist in spite of everyone's better judgment, including my own. Amid everything else, the plague year offered a perfect reason to eradicate fair culture altogether. What use did we have for its acrid blend of airless desperation anymore? Weren't most transactions done online now, as everyone helpfully kept reminding me? Yet, we were here still, again, sweating in a booth, adult food state no lessons were learned
1: yeah so why why i guess part of the question is are we really happy or satisfied enough um talking with people next to art or about art to kind of just return to the same art world that we um exited for briefly during the pandemic you know is it is that, is it satisfying enough to to have a cocktail on, on a, a balcony and a couple hours of conversation to warrant the return to basically the kind of spaces that, that Max, you know, described?
0: I'm not sure I know the answer to that question, but I will say that I spent like, you know, I don't know, maybe an hour and a half at the art fair, like at the Armory Art Fair, which, was not enough to see everything properly. But by the time I was done at the armory fair, I was like, that's enough for me. Um, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just like, that is the amount of time that I can spend in a giant, giant conference hall. And I did that. And I, I actually felt really good talking to people. Again, I felt like myself, um, Again, like some part of me that it had been lost was returned Mm -hmm. and that that was really nice. Um, you know, I think the armory itself, like I felt like if it had, um, a problem with it, it was probably that it like, it was like tasteful to a fault, um, which is the problem with these high-end art fairs, right? Like it's not like this would be the first art fair that blue chip art fair that you go to and you're like, well, there's no political art here. And like, everything looks good. Um, The thing is, is that I hadn't seen everything look that good in a really long time. So it was kind of exciting. Um, And so like Max talks about like a kind of relentless positivity is self-preservation. But I, you know, I'd also say like, You know, in response to that, well, yeah, but people like to like things. You know, it's like restaurants, people say they need to change. There's like a huge amount of exploitation that occurs within them. Institutionally, we need those changes, but also like restaurants are fun. And when they opened up, everyone was excited to go back to them, despite the fact that they were like an epicenter for COVID spreading, you know? So, like, the, the fundamental issue here is that like sort of a feeling of powerlessness um, that, you know, while we are excited to go back and see people and like, we're going back to a system that we know is like, we did a lot of work over the last year and a half, but it's not like all that work amounted to, change that we can now feel tangibly. Like we're not suddenly like out of the throes of whatever shit 2021 like left us.
1: Oh, totally. I mean, we're not, not at all. And, you know, I think when I first saw Chloe's tweet, um, part of my first initial response was like, I, I can't even get to the art fairs, we have to, can we talk about NFTs and this kind of massive expansion of, of speculation around art, you know, in a virtual space that that is sort of growing rapidly and <clears throat> goes against all my sort of instincts and sort of beliefs in, in a kind of just transition away from the art fair commercial gallery model world. Um, here's a new system that could potentially just replace it while replicating all of its worst aspects with none of the socialization, you know, uh, unless, you know, you're talking about Twitter fights or something uh, around NFTs. I mean, to the point about sort of pleasure and what the fairs do provide, I mean, you know, I sort of made a certain piece with the fairs coming back to them. Um, I don't expect to see much socially engaged or political work or really deeply conceptual work at the fairs. I kind of expect to see the gallery's best selling artists, you know, with some new art fair products made for them. Uh, A lot of gallery inventory that like represents the really formal side of an artist's practice if they have a more varied approach, like, you know, maybe like an artist like William Popel does a lot of social practice and, and performance art, but he also makes paintings and that's what you're gonna get at the art fair. So they're really, you know, kind of aesthetic thing and they're there to sell aesthetic objects i think one of the problems with armory and uh my friend the artist john powers pointed out that there was like 50 percent art like things at armory you know they they were sort of like aspirational design objects almost you know he was like is this art you know and that that's sort of a question you know that maybe you know i think you described it as things look really nice (laughs) but You know, I I didn't really see exactly what John was talking about. I thought there was a lot of art um, at the fair. I just wasn't you know particularly engaged by a whole lot of it. You know, we spent about two hours moving through the entire fair. And
0: uh, well, you know, years. like sort of getting back a little bit to the powerless thing. Like I think one one example of like this is something super small, but like you know I, the art form article. Like Max talks about how like, the smaller the art fair, the the better it is. Um, and I think, like, objectively, is 100% right. Like, you know, I, I actually miss the independent, but, like, you know, the idea of just going to see, like, 20-some-odd galleries just sounds like such a luxury. But, like, and we, like, we know this to be objectively correct, like, or not correct, but, like, this is the ideal viewing experience. But we are not just because we know that doesn't mean that we're going to get that. Like our knowledge will have zero impact on the art basel behemoth that like takes over all our fair, like all like industry, trade industry coverage for weeks at a time. Yeah. I think,
1: I think his great line in the article was that they're trying, we're trying to reverse engineer the gallery and eventually we'll get there. <laughs> you know, to, we just downsize the art fair to single artist shows with like 15 works. Where does that exist? I've never heard of that. I, oh, gallery, you know, I mean, I thought that was uh, really funny, but you know, you can expect a market built on profit seeking behavior to to give you ideal conditions. They need to maximize participants, the quality of the participants, how much money they can get. And that is through scale generally, just bring in more galleries, we can make more money. So I don't expect, there's no incentive for the fair to really change. I mean, I think Basel has set up some sort of solidarity fund because of all the restrictions in Switzerland where they're trying to offset some of the risks for galleries to participate financially. Yes, I saw that. I don't see that being a kind of long term model that um, that sounds like a socialist policy, you know, and then do you really want a for profit company running that? you know?
0: <laughs> well, they should have had those policies like in place all along. Right. Like that's, uh, you know,
1: well, I mean, you know, for a business to maybe try to sense that its own it's it's facing existential peril if it doesn't support its participants what i mean by that it's like it's a short-term thing you know when the conditions of the pandemic recede and it's back to status quo i don't think you'll see that kind of financial support for galleries from a for-profit industry you know if this was countries organizing a giant you know biennale or something and there was cultural funding for it um, and it wasn't about profit maybe you know that that's a different kind of art world that uh, i would like to see where fairs might not be as necessary but right now we've built our cultural infrastructure on, you know, commercial fairs to a large degree. Um, and, you know, not to say there aren't a ton of biennials, but, uh, uh, I can't remember any time where like seven of those would take place on the same weekend in New York.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's, that's the thing. I mean, one thing that this does, like, you know, a lot of our conversation is really centered around labor, which really brings up um, the other article article that we read around the same time as the fairs. I guess we're finishing up, which was um, Dana Kogel's, uh piece in The Baffler, um, titled which
1: was, Against Art Exploitation.
0: Yes, and that was basically like a blow by blow of the unionization of the new museum um, written by someone who was a union organizer there. Um, and by the end of that piece, I had lost all respect for Massimiliana Gianni. Whatever respect I had for Lisa Phillips was gone. Um, Hans Hacke was just like, okay, well, (laughs) I guess you're not the hero I thought you were.
1: there was some Um, disappointment in that article and i would agree with you i mean i have not uh, obviously i've not had a lot of respect for that institution since the 2009 piece that i did on the new museum um but one of the things that i i took on like sort of good faith or at least gave the benefit of the doubt that the new museum internally was not a site of like terrible uh, exploitation of, of their labor force. I sort of assumed that the worst thing happening there was that they were sidelining their curators. They were sidelining, you know, um, curatorial roles and, you know, like letting an oligarch sort of take over. What I I didn't even get into in that drawing or understand was how shitty of a place it was to work and how terrible Lisa, Lisa Phillips really is. I mean, like Dana had once told us that like she carried around an NYPD tote bag, you know, and you know, if if Chloe's tweet was sort of critical, shocking, yeah, if, if Chloe's tweet was critical of people going back to the art world, I would hold that same sentiment to anyone who steps foot in the new museum. Right. You know, like that, that is a place that Dana's article sort of outlines, we can talk about how she gets there, but like talk about hypocrisy, you know, like we actively fought against the formation of a union here. And then once we've gotten rid of most of the union organizers, we come out and say, look how great we are providing healthcare benefits to our part-time workers. Look at us, we're great, you know, like uh, just uh, like sort of at every level, what they do internally, and then what they present to the public is like just definition of art washing, you know, and like just how they're using their reputation to sort of mask what, what is really going on inside that museum, which does not sound great at all.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the sort of, so the blow by blow kind of talks about the conditions, how they started and like how how they even got worse, which when you hear the framing of it, so the the framing is basically like, you know, things were shitty, meaning like um, Dana, for example, spent 21 hours um, working, preparing wall labels for a show, and then ultimately um, because New York at State at that time did not mandate overtime, um, she was uh, just given a day at the spa um, as compensation, which seems like not quite a, quite enough. But one of the things I found really interesting about that is when she's recounting like all the things, like all the ways that she was sort of abused and the hierarchies within the museum, she had said that, her boss had gone home at 11 p.m. and they were there till 4.30. Now that's a huge gap. But I mean, the thing that I thought was kind of interesting was that like her boss was doing an enormous, like this. her boss, I'm sure was not that high up either. Like her boss had a terrible amount of hours of overtime that weren't paid either. And I think that kind of ties to this, like, sort of vicious circle of work and communication that feels impossible to opt out of.
1: Um, And I mean, she clarifies how much like Lisa Phillips is making in terms of her salary, which was so much higher. I don't know if you have that stat, right?
0: Yeah, $700,000 a year versus um, people who were getting paid less than half of what they got, what MoMA staff got paid. And MoMA staff does not get paid that well.
1: Yeah, yeah. What she said. Yeah, they they were making less than half of the MoMA staff. And what I thought was really sort of interesting about it is that you know to to understand that culture of of just abuse and dysfunction within that museum is that they had to communicate with each other because what I heard about you know like working conditions at MoMA and the new museum is that it's not only is it hierarchical but that creates siloization. The workers are yes. not able to talk to each other. And there was the one paragraph I, I thought was relevant. She said, we realized that our grievances were the same across departments. Wages we couldn't live on, inexperienced or verbally abusive managers, uncompensated overtime, the sense that museum, con- museum leadership considered us disposable, easy to replace once we were inevitably burned out. But she says, we kept talking. We shared our salaries. There were 15 and 20 of us at the nondescript wine bar where we started meeting week uh, meeting after work, every other week, the idea of unionizing kept coming up more seriously each time. And so it's this idea that, you know, that that the communication and awareness of sort of what was going on was like the first step to being able to sort of say, uh, we need to, we need to make some changes here, you know, about it.
0: yeah, and I think it's telling that when they um, when the uh, efforts to unionize really um, got going, one of the th- the first things they um, cut off was the employee access to Slack, which is where they did a lot of conversation and organizing. So, um, you know, I I think um, Massimiliano Gianni, like he. To my mind, like that, the Venice Biennale that he curated in 2013 is like one of the great um, exhibitions of all time and has now been soiled somewhat um, by this report because he, like, he compared unionizing to Brexit, insisting that the Brits who voted to leave, those of us who would vote for a union, didn't know what we were getting ourselves into he'll also maintain that change can be implicated, uh, implemented without traumatic measures like a union. But then of course, like throughout the piece, you see all of the ways that they had uh, tried to um, undermine any effort to make any progress.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the senior management leadership was totally opposed to the union and sort of fought them every step, you know, divided them up, you know, sort of, Cornered people individually. It's it's a really you know disturbing read, and part of what's so disturbing about it is that you know Marsha Tucker, who founded the museum, you know, and this is from the article. You know, beyond simply creating a museum that better supported living artists, she also wanted the museum's internal structure to be non-hierarchical. And just <laughs> reading through the article, it's so clear you know how hierarchical and sort of abusive the institution has become internally. You know,
0: yeah, I mean, like there's a line in the in the article. So Marsha Tucker, for for those of you who don't know, um, the founding director of uh, the New Museum died in 2006 when Lisa Phillips, the current executive director, got wind of the unionizing efforts. She said um, to a more uh, sympathetic executive to to her cause, well, they can negotiate with Marsha Tucker yeah like she just sounds like a terrible awful person like these are the kinds of things where you read a report like this and you're like why does this like why does this person still get to have her job like like why? like I mean I get it but like that's to me this just like breaks any kind of um moral standard that you would want in a leader.
1: Yeah. But the question of, of why does she still have her job? We have to remember that Lisa Phillips serves at the pleasure of the new museum board. And can you imagine the new museum board, um, really having any sense of what it's like to work there? You know, they attend a few meetings a year. Um, they probably, I, I can't, make gross generalizations, but I'm gonna say that her Lisa Phillips values reflect the values of the leadership of the museum. And so, you know, there that that question of powerlessness that you described earlier, like we we can't change how fairs operate. We can't change a lot of these systems. Um, uh, you know, we we, you and I really don't have any say in like Lisa Phillips position. You know, all we can do is is help shame her, shame the board by you know sharing Dana's really sort of powerful piece.
0: Right, but like does shame work on anybody anymore? Like this is the thing like I feel like I I just I don't even know what shame means in this environment.
1: Okay, you know, I I mean I hear you and um it is very difficult. It took 9 weeks of art in action, like multiple artists threatening to withdraw their work from the Whitney uh an art form essay by Hannah Black and Toby and and uh senior, I, I mean, i'm gonna mess up his name um but you know uh toby and 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 it, uh, anyway i'll have to come back in with the third artist, artist name but it took a, a coordinated not even coordinated but like multiple fronts of like shaming and boycott and withdrawal to get one board member off the whitney board
0: no that worked and i know was that the but first you know time that's I, ever worked
1: yeah, I mean it's it might have been it's ever worked. And it took like, you know, a very clear harm being caused that you could clearly see. There was nothing abstract about it to get that guy off the board. And he's still pissed and threatening retaliation against people that were involved in that. Um it's, it's so it's a it's a really tough and ugly fight. And so I don't think shaming is is a going to do it, but it's a step towards creating the conditions where you can start to generate potentially enough outrage in an institution to mobilize people to do things. And I mean, like the, the 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 really sad thing about Dana's piece is that they organized internally, they did the thing of like forming a union. And basically reading is it, like, there's a union there, but the people who organized it are gone, they lost their jobs, you know, under yeah. the, of the pandemic. And the, I don't know how long that union will hang on, you know, I mean, I think it's, um, but not to be like sort of fatalistic about this, I just think that it's to to get rid of, say, Lisa Phillips, it would take a coordinated effort with staff members in the institution, the union, outside protesters, you know, a whole lot. Oh,
0: of- yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I'm, I was not asking the question um, in any kind of serious way, like, why didn't like why didn't this happen? Although I do think that had something like this come out in a different time, maybe there would have have been some repercussions in a way that there there aren't now. I do think that everything that you just laid out with like candors and then also um, the experience that Dana spells out in this argument is the, like, is is the re- refutation of Gianni's statement change can be implemented without traumatic measures it, no, no, in, no. in this environment that's just not true
1: well while we're on this this subject in this point of the article i mean one of the most disappointing things like details of the article was her experience with hans hacke right the kind of great yes. institutional critique and just this, this paragraph where she says, Haka told us he understood what we were fighting for. As a professor at Cooper Union, he had helped organize the faculty union and would be happy to support us. Only it would have to be after the opening of his show because he had people coming from across the country and even from outside the country for the exhibition. And, you know, I, I sort of get it. I mean, that's almost like a, you wanna have your cake and eat it too, like I, I will help you, but first I have to have the opening. I have to you know, respect the people that come to the show, but it, it's so disturbing that this is, as an artist, if somebody asked me to withhold my content, particularly as like a white male artist in some of Hans Hacke's stature to say, well, I'm gonna have to do the opening first, just really undermines like the opportunities for solidarity, to change the system, Um, because, and and I think about this a lot, because another person that I've been involved in the kind of arts union organizing with, we kept asking, why don't we get artists involved? If the artists will withhold their labor, um, and we know that we can't ask the same thing of every artist, but we can ask artists who can take on more risk to withdraw, to say no to things, and my feeling was like, it's going to be really difficult, and then to read that Hans Hacke, who's somebody you think would be really open to like this.
0: if there was anyone yeah, who yeah, would do that, to do it who the fuck
1: is gonna you know like
0: that was like oh, the one time I went to the you know I went I went to the new museum um no offense to the the wall label um writers at the new museum but I guess a little bit of us us a, a slight like their wall text is terrible always like whatever their style guide is like they need to throw it out it's like written for people who are stupid or something but like hans Hock is like all of the wall text was like super pointed activist language he was like a hero and behind the scenes he's not doing doing any of the stuff that this art was really fighting for so like you know he he did pay a price in the um in the article it talks about how he uh wasn't able to show at moma for what was it like 25 years something like that um because of a lot of his activist work um but like he's famous like he is somebody like this participating in this is not gonna hurt him if i you know if anything it would probably just reinforce what he does
1: yeah i was at a talk about artists uh, rights organized by the artist rights society and wage uh, a few years ago and Hans was on the panel and he flat out told the audience do not become dependent on the sales of your art and that he was able to use still use Seth Siegelleb's artist you know resale contract with his works because he wasn't necessarily selling a lot of work or financially dependent on it and that his tenured you know uh, professor position sort of, Basically, you know, supports him, and so the choice to show at the new museum, and we, you know, we can talk a, a little bit more about this, but like, it's really a vol- <clears throat> it's really a voluntary choice for him. You know, this isn't a matter of survival. You know, it's not like, or it's not his first opportunity to show. Um, this is, you know, he had room to really think about the moral and ethical dimensions of of the choice to go through the opening and to show his work at the museum after meeting with the staff that are telling him about these sort of terrible conditions and their fight to sort of unionize and push back against this. I think Hantaka could have made a better decision let's say. But I will, you know, point out that Dana says in her article that quote, you know, once again contemporary art insists on reducing everything to the individual. So I can't blame Hantaka, you know, I can't put this on him that like you know, they and Dana points out that like shortly after it didn't even come to that because yeah. the museum agreed to the union contract and didn't sort of force Hansaka to to go through with his decision. There was a contract in place, but you know, like if there and this is part of the reason why not only is the, it, it necessary for there to be a, a union at each museum and in each institution where there's direct employer employee relationships, but that's why we've been sort of organizing a more, you know, an arts union for people like artists like Hansaka who are not employees, but will work with museums and that their labor is connected to institutions like this where we can do that thing that Dana did with her coworkers, which is talk and share information and become aware of situations so that you can walk into an institution and know this shit before you decide to stake your career and your work and your integrity to an institution that internally is run, you know, really badly, and I think that's still a very necessary thing to move it away from the individual ethical or moral choices of, say, an artist like Hans Haka, but to like, you know, put it on contemporary artists as a collective, you know, body, and not just say that, you know, it's it's one person's decision um, is going to make or break these institutions. Clearly, that won't. It took nine artists at the Whitney to put some you know, pressure on them, you know?
0: Right, right. I mean, I think like, I think it's sort of getting to the way that this article wraps up. Like um, one of the things that happens that we've talked about a little bit already is that the union efforts did ultimately succeed. And then once they succeeded um, and the pandemic started, Slowly, the layoffs started happening. So the first wave, a lot of the union union organizers were gotten rid of, and then in the second wave, they got rid of the rest. And that's where Dana uh, Dana's job was cut. And her speculation was that um, this was some. They thought if they if they staggered it, it would lo- look less intentional. Like, <laughs> yeah. like all of us that you know noticing that there's no union left. Yeah. Didn't you know didn't figure that out. Um, and then like the thing that's sort of really um offensive about all this is like the whole time they're positioning themselves as these like wildly prog- this wildly progressive museum, they get rid of their union after the union has basically won all these rights, and then they send out a press release about how great an institution they are to work at because of all of these things they're offering their employees. So that was something that, you know, the author recounts with a certain amount of, um, you know, she's very hurt by this.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. you can't, uh, you have to read the article to really hear the kind of like accumulation of damage, you know, mental harm that sort of like, accumulates over this while trying to do something that we're all cheering for on the sidelines, you know, unions are great Unionize, And it's just it took a really serious toll on it, you know?
0: Yeah. And she talks about that too, like the health problems and all the rest that, that um, arose from that. Um, but in any event, like when, when I read that the new museum had said that they like, that they were basically this, like, amazing enlightened employer, I kind of thought like initially like, oh, well, if they want to paint themselves this way, all the power to them, like that, um, that's just going to give them the reputation they, they need to live up to. But then I realized that it really wasn't like that because they're really more like Exxon. That's mm-hmm. like, like, they're spreading disinformation about climate change, boasting about, you know, how, um, how they're actually doing evil things behind the scenes, and then, you know, claiming corporate responsibility accolades whenever the chance occurs. And that's when I started to think um, about this Jenny O'Dell book that I've been reading, the um, How to Do Nothing. Um, and I'm still reading it. Um, so, For those of you who've already read it, there may be giant chunks that would be relevant to this that I can't talk about yet. But she quotes a Deleuze essay from the the early 1980s where he writes, repressive forces don't stop people from expressing themselves, but rather force them to express themselves. What a relief to have nothing to say. And then she talks about how nothing is a precursor to ha- uh, to having something to say um and that kind of led me down the path of like how like the media environment that we live in now that demands expression even when you don't have anything to say is this like really toxic place and has a really perilous effect on our s- state of mind and culture and i feel like that came out in the article where she's talking about all of the kind of like all of the emotional trauma that she experienced because she's being, she was gaslit basically for two years plus solid. Like that's what happens when you're forced to express yourself when you shouldn't have to. Anyway. Um, so the whole thing was sort of, um, enlightening and very, very sad.
1: Part of the discussions we've been having within the arts union is that we don't want to be a traditional union that's there just to only protect the interests or labor rights of the workers. Um, because people, you know, can associate unions with, um, well, there's, whether it's Jimmy Hoffa, or sort of protective things, there's, there's a certain kind of class and, and racial dimension to this, that like, it's, The the image of the new museum union workers um, that I have on my screen from the article, it's it's almost entirely white, you know, as a group, there's very few people of color in this this group. And part of that is that like most of the uh, museums, the security staff, which tend to have more BIPOC workers cannot organize with the, you know, um, staff of the museum and there's sort of federal laws about if your job is to protect property you can't you know uh, organize with other unions um, within the same institution but, huh. you know there there is something sort of troubling about this that you know um, so many of the kind of like unhealthy behaviors and structures of the museum do kind of fall under this kind of rubric of whiteness you know like the sense that the senior staff is comfortable saying things like what did they say? Um, I wish we could send the shooters after whoever's organizing the union after like an active shooter drill. You know, that's what they say to each other in private. You know, there's a comfort like, hey, we're in this, you know, we're, we're upper management and, and we can say this privately and then we'll go out in public and say what a progressive institution we are. The museum is just, it's like, there's so many problems nested in here, some of which the union um, is sort of capable of addressing the things they can about their conditions of their own labor but it's harder to kind of step back and say we're almost like an entirely white group what do we do about this you know and i think that's yes. something that we've been very conscious of and thinking about is how to create those lines of communication if there is this kind of um structural like overrepresentation of white folks you know in in a union um, and it makes, you know, it adds a degree of difficulty to the work, but it's a necessary, you know, um, degree of difficulty. And it was like sort of the only thing that stuck out to me when I'm reading this, you know, sort of piece is that there is this other sort of contradiction built into, into this union organizing effort, um, particularly because it wasn't just the pandemic people were protesting or, you know, like that wasn't defining our lives. It was also the Black Lives Matter protests after George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's murders. You know, and most of these institutions release statements about diversity and equity and how they were going to change. That, you know, I, I still think there's a lot of work to do to look at the institutions next spring or next summer and say, what have you done? You know, what is is there is is there any way to even hold them accountable to those things? Um, and this, you know, this isn't a criticism of Dana's piece or the union. It's just a kind of observation of some of the you know other structural problems. You know, that when, when we get into talking about organized labor in the art world, we have to think about race, you know, and class and gender and ability, you know, all of these things.
0: I mean, next year is gonna be a tough year because like that's also um, an election year. Mm-hmm. So so we have, a, I feel like we have a lot of things on our plate that are, um, that are coming up that are gonna be pretty big deals.
1: Yeah, and you know, I mean, we've been we spent a lot of our time we're talking about the kind of the politics and and labor around art, but one of the things that the art fairs remind us of is that you know, this all of this labor and work is connected to art and this activity that you know, we we did see some art. <laughs> and yeah, we did. Maybe, uh, you know, to to be respectful of of you know, the artists and the artwork that we saw that we thought is um sort of worth discussing. I mean, it, I, we have to acknowledge that it's hard to shift from like a discussion of the dysfunctional nature of our institutions and our labor um, to then go in and sort of talk about the pleasure <laughs> of, of of looking at, at artwork and um, this thing that I do, and that you are supporting artists, you know, trying to do. so. Um, I don't know which fair you want to start with. Is there one you want to um, kind of get back to and sort of look at the other side of this this kind of space that we're we're negotiating?
0: Well, let's talk about the armory since that was sort of the big one and we we spent the most amount of um, uh, real estate, for lack of a better word, uh, time, real estate on that. Um, I guess. You know, my first pick for uh, for a booth that I thought stood out was Jeffrey Gibson um, at Tandem Press. This is like super small booth. Um, so North Carolina artists, um, Choctaw, Cherokee artists, geometric abstraction on traditional drums. Um, the woman that I talked to there told me that there was actually a fair amount of education um, that usually went on at the fairs. Um, just in terms of like educating people that um just because the artist did not physically touch the the paint that the, the and that it was an addition did not mean that the, the work was any less valuable. <laughs> um but there was like it was this sort of constellation of um the drums, they were just like flat drums. So um I think there were maybe five or six and they looked, they were just um beautiful because the they're very like um uh, kaleidoscopic and there was a photoshop gradient in one so there's like a real mix of like kind of technology um light color plus the um the the kind of background that um jeffrey gibson brings to this um himself so i thought that was that was definitely one of my highlights yeah, I think,
1: you know, before I get to the highlights, I'll I'll start at the other end of things. And um, I think the, the, you know, on Twitter, I did, I did live tweet one, one thing from Armory. And it was a picture of um, what I thought was sort of the worst booth booth in the fair that also kind of captured maybe the the aesthetic I was sort of repelled by this year. And I don't know if it's a combination of the coming out of the pandemic or thinking about what I want or what I need out of art right now, but it was that uh, gallery Kravitz and Weebly. It was just like a sort of brightly colored explosion of like high, highly saturated, you know, uh, color. And um, it was just sort of gross. (laughs) And it was not, I, I, it was not the aesthetic that I was sort of looking for, you know, stuff that, that like had a kind of exuberance to it. But I was like, I, yeah, there were, cots and vaccination lines here and you know this is not the work that i'm going to be responding to at the fair and so kravitz and weebly for me was sort of the worst booth and the things that i tended to avoid um and so that you know i i, I know jeffrey gibson's work i you know i think it's uh, really important work but the aesthetic of it was not something that i probably would have been drawn to uh this work through armory
0: yeah you know i think uh I think there was actually a lot of that type of like um, super colorful work. Um, and I, I'm not, I'm not surprised to see um, that palette at the fair. Like it, it's not an unfamiliar narrative that it was on me the- at least because well, people out- are like,
1: at other fairs,
0: yeah, I mean, because people have been sp- spent like the last year and a half, like in misery. Like, what can you do to feel a little bit better? I know, like, I'll, I'll
1: use some color. I know, but I'm like, did it have to be Pepto-Bismol? At, you know, plus, like, you know, cherry red colors and just a kind of like, and then when you put so much of it in one booth, it's just too much, you know. And that's not what I was looking for this year. I mean well,
0: but what did you think of Tao Lewis at Night Gallery? That was the giant head installation type of um piece that was sort of surrounded by hanging crystals and there was like a tongue extended. I
1: didn't venture very far into the night gallery booth. I, I sort of dragged my uh partner wife, Kristen, over just to see what was sort of happening at Night Gallery, but we didn't spend a whole lot of time there. This
0: actually, this wasn't in the booth. It was one of those Uh like island installations. So this Mm -hmm. was like a widely reproduced um, image that I think Max uh, Lackin described as a regurgitating quilted head.
1: (laughs) Um, Uh, I think I I didn't give that a whole lot of attention. But not fair. Not, yeah, like down on on armory um, for what I didn't like. I mean, I can just quickly go through a few things that um, stuck out to me. I mean, uh, one of the things like I, I I was sort of drawn to Jennifer Bartlett's large scale paintings. I don't know if you saw um, her piece in the fair. She had like two paintings. I I'm not. What aware.
0: what booth was that at? You no,
1: know, I'd have to look that up. But I thought Jennifer Bartlett's kind of paintings, and I hadn't seen her work in a long time. Um, and it was really, I thought, sort of refreshing to see. Um, I really was, uh, I kind of like Camaru's Arams, you know, sort of, and also Jose Davila's kind of like takes on geometry. Um, their abstraction, I thought was really interesting. Um, I, I appreciated Sarah Greenberger Rafferty's glass kind of based photography pieces.
0: Oh those were great. Those, those were, were re- re- really great. That, <laughs> so that was at Rachel Effner. Yes. Yeah,
1: that was at Rachel yeah. Effner. And those were, you know, I think all sort of wonderful things to see. And maybe my favorite paintings were actually by um, Susumu uh, Kamijo at Jack Hanley. And they were mm-hmm. these like deconstructed abstract dog paintings. There was one that sort of had a, an octopus form in it. Um, and they were really just this kind of like fantastic balance of uh, a little bit of surrealism within the abstraction, a level of representation in the work, a kind of muted considered palette. It didn't just like kind of vomit the color at me. And, you know, I I'd probably consider myself a little bit of like a Camillo stan at this point. And, you know, it's weird. They had a kind of like they, they had that ironic earnestness to them that maybe somebody might like call like cringe at this point by like very serious painters. There's something that was kind of kitschy about them, but they were a kind of sweet spot um, for me. And I just found them sort of um, deeply like gratifying. And maybe the most sort of like surprising artist that I responded to for me was um, Haley Barker at Shrine Gallery. I would sort of describe the work as sort of like the colors the oils were sort of stained into the linens with very little medium so there's a kind of like dry um stain quality you know to the work it was not um super flashy it just sort of had a kind of atmospheric quality to the landscape and it's not surprising that when I like looked up her work that she has, you know, a, a really strong background in spirituality and a kind of deep connection to nature and uh, an interest in shamanism and normally those are things that are like alarm bells for me. But just to give you like my state of mind that that's what the kind of like painting that was sort of drawing me in after this long period of, you know, sort of pandemic anxiety.
0: I mean, I feel like there's a lot of that type of um, stuff kind of milling about in the in the culture. Did you see um, or have thoughts about Wendy Redstar's uh, booth at Sargent's Daughter? Um, she's the, um, she had this like giant kind of paper mache um, truck in it along with some collages.
1: Um, we, I remember walking by, was that, which was that in the sort of second half section of the show? Was it, or the focus or solo projects? I'm trying to. Remember. It was in,
0: it was in focus. It's hard to say like, which side is the, is the front half or this, the first half and the second half. Cause you can go either way when you get into the, uh,
1: mm. when you can
0: get into the, the booth, but she Probably. was at the, what I would consider the far end of the fair, um, which would be um, the south end.
1: Was that where the main gallery section was? Because there was one sort of section attached to the main gallery part, you know?
0: Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm so like, I'll just mention here sure. that she had this like half, it was sort of like the side, it was a booth sized um, pickup truck, which would mean that it was maybe half the size of an actual pickup truck, but still kind of large. Um, made of paper mache Um, and like I'm like a big fan of Wendy Redstar's work I think that she's done some like really interesting art about Native American um, culture and it tends to be really well researched and also there's like a good um, kind of formal quality to it but to me this was the kind of thing that said more about like what sells at an art fair than it did you know, anything else, but the truck is like um a crow fair parade car. And she's from the crow tribe, um, that was adorned with a larger than life sized um bonnet made by Clive Francis Dust Sr., who's known um in his community for um as being you know, for his creativity. Um, but surrounding those um, trucks were a series of new collages. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how many collages there were. Maybe like twenty or something. There was a. There, it felt like a lot. But those collages, they were created from images of parade cars in the past, and they were all kind of fashioned um, in ornate, like the the cars themselves would be fashioned in ornate um, fabrics as a kind of celebration. So it was like this imaginative kind of theories of trucks that I thought, um, did speak like really beautifully and powerfully to the future in a way, like, I think in part, because they felt like a little bit more delicate than this Mm. giant truck in the center. So I, you know, it was, it was a booth that I had like actual thoughts about.
1: Yeah. You know, I think this is where we probably had very different experiences at the fair in the sense that anything that seems sort of like celebratory, um, whether it's in the service of celebrating, you know, a, a, a indigenous identity and, and a culture, it, I, I wasn't there to receive <laughs> celebratory, enthusiastic, you know, uh, things because, you know, I, I guess I'm still, you know, in the Chloe Bass, you know, sort of choice that's presented, you know, still feeling the, the, the anxiety and the effects of, and just really thinking about um, all of the things that are are making it very difficult to just kind of uncritically receive or celebrate things. Which I know, you know, like I I, I respect that work and I think it's really important, but you know, kind of going into that that's not where I was at, you know, sort of mentally, emotionally. um, And, and, you know, that idea that having like real thoughts about things, I think is fascinating, because like, um, I, Kristen really slowed us down to take a look at these, what I thought were just really gorgeous, textural black monochromatic forms of Dante Hayes at like Mindy Solomon Gallery. And they were, you know, these sort of like, organic forms that kind of speak of life and fertility and, and you know whether it's human or plant life you know they're just have these kind of textured forms that are really specific. and I didn't have like a lot of direct thoughts about them I was you know thinking about the materiality um, the, the sort of weight of them what they sort of evoked in me in a sort of indirect manner and I felt like that's a lot of what I was sort of thinking and looking for really was opportunities for something that would be um, maybe more more abstract or, or metaphorical, you know, sort of like interactions with things. And I, those were some of the sort of more powerful, like individual, like a, one of the more in powerful individual booths that I saw. Um, and And I don't know, you know, I, like I'm still processing what what I was really responding to at the fairs this year, because I felt like I, I was on a very different, I was looking for different things than I think I might normally would, which also made it less disappointing. You know, I, I wasn't looking for like that kind of political work or th- something that would be like self-critical of the whole situation, you know? Um, was
0: was there anything that you really didn't like?
1: Well, that Kravitz and Weebly booth was just, Bad. Um, there were a few things that I photographed, but you know, ultimately I left those out. Um, like what? What beyond singling out kind of Kravitz and Weebleks? I think that can you know, I'll stand by that. Sure, sure. No, well, I mean, I you know, I, I thought that like we we ended our circuit through Armory um, and came to Michael Rakowitz's large sculptural uh, installation courtesy of Jane Lombard Gallery in the platform section. And it was like the Pomery prize winner, which I think is Pomery's maybe a a kind of champagne or something. And, you know, it was such a weird kind of experience. Um, You know, I I can definitely congratulate Michael for winning that award. And I've had the kind of like great uh, pleasure and honor of kind of getting to know him over the last year and a half as a person and an activist and an artist. And he was, you know, his work held this kind of space of contradiction, like profoundly political artwork sitting in the middle of of this art fair uh, that like was so aesthetically kind of pleasing that, you know, uh, my, my art dealer in LA and Charlie, I apologize for sharing this, but like he emailed me and he's like, what did you think of Rakowitz's piece? And I'm like, I thought it was great. And he's like, yeah, I really dug it. I would love to show his work. You know, and I'm like, wow, that's really kind of incredible because, you know, Charlie's a political being, but he's not a political being like like Michael Rakowitz, you know, and yeah, uh, it was a great place to kind of end because Michael's work is really satisfying aesthetically, visually, but then there's also the absence of the other artifacts that have been lost and destroyed that he sort of, or are located in other, uh, you know, institutions around the world. I also know, you know, sort of what Michael will spend some of that prize money on, and it's not enriching himself or his own, you know, going back into his practice. It will support, you know, other work that he's, he's doing as an activist and an organizer. Um, And so that, you know, again, going back to Chloe's like sort of tweet, what the world we work in is, is one sort of full of contradictions. And it was, I just thought Michael's work, Held that space, you know, with as much dignity as you can in a Pomeroy prize winning, you know, uh, (laughs) the fair. Um, And and so, I I mean, I left feeling Armory uh, pretty good in a way. You know, I found things that I took some pleasure from, got to see some people that I felt really nice to see and talk to. Um, But, you you know, it's hard to not think about the pandemic and why it was at Javits and everything that was sort of happening around it. And that was that was a Saturday. And I got to go for free on a VIP ticket provided by Charlie James, you know.
0: Yeah, so I was there on a Friday which was pretty quiet. Apparently the day before was really um quite busy and maybe a little bit alarming for that even um how how many people were out. Um I like I I've said this before but like I was just really really happy to be there. At, well, actually that's not true. I was not excited to go, but once I got there, which is like most things actually, like I was not super excited to go out, but once I got there, I was like, oh my God, art it's so amazing. Um, and you know, amongst, I think like we had wanted to identify maybe like one thing that we didn't like quite quite as much. And for me, I had like a little bit of a breakthrough um, that I would love to share with all of you which begins with like something entirely different just as a like simile, let's say, but like when I was younger, I used to spend a lot of time drinking beer Um, and I hate beer. It tastes terrible. (laughs) And I just assumed that eventually I would get to like it like everybody else. And so I drank a lot of it and it just never really happened. And one day, you know, I was out on a date with the guy that I'm, I'm actually with. He was like, it sounds like you don't like beer. Maybe you shouldn't drink it. And this was like a revelation to me, like, oh, I don't need to do this. Um, so anyway, um, I was at the armory and I was looking at this Tony Metelli and Tony Metelli is this sculptor who I've, Really spent a lot of time like trying to figure out like how, how to write positive things about the work. Um, and he he makes these sculptures that are sometimes quite disturbing. They're all kind of Trump loyal, um, made of bronze and then painted on to look like um exactly the the things they depict. So they might be like a stack of cards or. I think one armory he had like a disemboweled person, like this sort of thing. Um, In this case, um, he was at um, Marani Mercier. I don't know if I'm saying that name right, but, but in this case, he had a series of bronzed flowers, tulips, I think, that were in vases but upside down. So basically, these like these flowers. And their delicate stems were um, supporting larger structures. And they were very, they were painted in bright colors, very beautiful. And it was the first time that I looked at that work and I was just like, wait a minute, I don't have to like this. This is terrible. Like this is just, it's sort of dumb. And yes, I can, you know, take a look at this and say like, oh, maybe there's maybe this speaks to um our upside down world and um the way that things are, are sort of fragile, but but there's like strong bones underneath, whatever the hell. I just I I just thought like, you know what, I'm just I don't have to do this actually. Like I I think this I would really be unhappy seeing this in any museum and reading any kind of placard about it. I definitely would not want it in my home. And so now I feel liberated.
1: That's awesome. And I think you should, you know, and I, I, I had not reservations about doing this podcast, but I don't, you know, I don't want to have to justify the things that I responded to, you know, at like maybe a more affective intuitive, emotional level this year than like a kind of hardcore criticality about what X, Y, or Z means. Um, I was looking for things that maybe could give a little bit of space of refuge to retreat from like the fucking traumas of the past year and a half, uh, the traumas of the art world, like working in it, working around it, you know, the traumas of reading Dana's Dana's article and knowing this stuff exists. um, You know, and and I don't think you should feel compelled to have to like, like an artist's work or try to understand it, you know, if you don't feel it, you know, like, (laughs) no, you know, I mean, if somebody's paying you to do that, then you are in a coercive relationship. You know, someone is asking you and paying you to do something that you you might not want to otherwise do. And yes, we we do get a little bit of money from listeners to do this podcast, but this is on this is not like a paid thing. No one is coercing us to do this. Um, we sort of make a choice to come together and talk about work. Um, and so I don't know. I'm glad you feel like liberated from having to kind of like find the good in Tony Mattelli sculpture. You don't have to. <laughs>
0: no i mean the press release the press releases for this stuff talk talk about how it's a kind of emotional distress single signal like that's that like it's just kind of dumb so
1: yeah and you know i i it's probably time to move on from armory yep but I, i just for the viewers like i do want like for the listeners to this podcast to know that like when I I went to the fair on Tuesday as like an art handler to install a Berlin-based galleries booth, you know, and it was an interesting kind of like other side of the art fairs, we may not necessarily think they're the best way to see art or view them, but arriving there at like 11 AM, there was a stream of like workers coming in, you know, and I'm thinking about this, this is like the day after federal unemployment benefits expired and how much, you know, how many people depend on the work, you know, that that the fairs sort of create, and I feel like I'm becoming some sort of terrible Republican, but I'm just sort of thinking about what, what how are people going to survive, you know, if, if there aren't the sort of jobs that we normally associate with the commercial gallery system or art fairs. And, you know, uh, I saw a whole lot of people I knew, you know, Tuesday, who I know also as artists, I know, you know, I got to see dealers in a different sort of light and way. Um, and that there's a whole lot of activity that sort of goes around these things, and that that it is an economy, and it's doesn't have to be an exceptional one, and it should be a place where we do sort of like hopefully collectivize our labor and work. But I just want to acknowledge there was a whole lot of jobs (laughs) sort of happening. Don't uh, worry.
0: Don't don't worry, William. I don't think anybody is going to accuse you of becoming a a Republican because you have seen the benefit of of employment.
1: Yeah. Um, But, you know, if we do, I um, I did travel down to the independent and I know that you um, maybe didn't make it to the independent. No, I
0: didn't. But tell us about the independent. So,
1: um, you know, the the independent's now located at the um, Cipriani South Street. It's sort of like a branded, I don't, I think maybe there's a restaurant connected to it or it is a restaurant. Um, so it's in this kind of like elegant new space. And Max Lankin sort of talks about this with its stunning view of whatever, of like the highway, you know, beneath. It's not like there's a, a, a real gorgeous view at this place, but... You know, the the new venue was more intimate. There were only like 43 galleries in it. And I know earlier you said that, you know, the smaller the art fair, objectively, it gets better. I might disagree, you know. (laughs) Tell me. as a proportion, 43 to, you know, the number of things that I found to be sort of interesting and and relevant, um, you know, it was pretty small. It, It wasn't that different from the armory there was just less things, you know, to kind of have to deal with. Um, and and one thing that was sort of a, a note about it as a sort of like operative metaphor for all the weight of things that we've been discussing at, at the Independent. And I, I know Max referenced this too, but it was one of the first things you notice is that there were just giant Julian Schnabels hung up towards the ceilings over every single booth in the space. And, you know, they just sort of run through the whole place. And it was like, kind of good that they were almost out of eye level like you didn't really have to like them but they were present you know just like this white man and then his son's got a booth there you know it's it, there's a little a few things that were sort of um discordant and kind of gross about it but um overall you know you're you're right it was it was definitely a more like intimate and pleasurable experience to go to the independent after armory and, but it also only took like 40 minutes, you know, to sort of walk through and not the same kind of space where we had a whole lot of conversations with people. You know, we sort of met our friends and went out uh, for a cocktail in the bar, uh, you know, on the outside, but I feel, like
0: of- the, I feel like the independent has always been that way though. Like it doesn't seem, it's it's just not hugely even set up for that. Like when I think about the independent in their previous space, like, did they even have a spot to, to get food? Like, where was that? There was the rooftop. Well, we went oh, to- Oh, no, they had the cafeteria. I never saw anybody in that.
1: I know, but remember, well, the last fair that we went to, I think before the pandemic, together we went to independent. Yeah. And, you know, it was, it was that was a bigger version of the fair. There was more booths. You know, I think we spent more time. There was quite a bit. The booths were larger. I mean, everything about the Cipriani is everything was sort of downsized.
0: But like, how many conversations did we have at that fair?
1: You had quite a few. I mean, you, you we did. Yeah, we stopped and talked to some folks. I can't. I remember. feel like
0: I have completely erased this from my mind.
1: It was also terribly um, anxiety ridden. We were all just sort of like, "Oh my God, is this a super spreader event? What are we doing here?" You know, uh, I did not leave that fair with a very good feeling. Um, <laughs> this, so you know, I mean. What what I liked and what I took away from independent, um, I think, like one of my favorite paintings, uh, you know, in the fair was done in this kind of like loose ephemeral style that sort of veers into atmospheric abstraction and the painting was done by Cedric Chisholm in the new American paintings booth. Which again is really weird i'm usually like allergic to like what new American paintings is putting up on the walls. But, like his, it was a sort of portrait of a figure rising up out of a kind of glowing red lake or river. And it was just sort of captivating. And again, it's sort of like oil staining into linen, nothing sort of like highly produced, no, you know, taped off geometric abstraction. Um, And in his statement, Chisholm wrote uh, the civic human subject in relations to the monstrous absolute other, uh, you know, in a quote, toxic hallucinatory wasteland. Um, was you know I, like the way he was describing the work was sort of how I was feeling about life you know about you know this uh, the, the world that we're sort of inhabiting right now and just that this sort of single image was really captivating uh, and the painting was sort of beautifully done and you know a toxic hallucinary hallucinatory wasteland um, if I flashed forward for my post uh, independent art fair visit seeing. Masses of unmasked drunk firefighters, cops, first responders spilling out of bars in lower Manhattan with bagpipes playing on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and being unable to pass and having to like run over to the West Side Highway to get around it, to get to a train, to get out of there. Um, I kept thinking about that that painting, you know, and just what is the monstrous absolute other, you know, uh, in this case you know felt like there this other aspect of like white toxic culture was just present you know around the art fair weekend and that you know it's hard to sort of like get into but that sense that they're you know like really divided worlds right now and that yeah. like the art fair world was happening there's issues with the art fairs and then there was this 9 11 kind of like death call Fucked up Irish wake thing happening around with like death tourists coming in. I don't know. I couldn't see it as something being very commemorative. Um, but that you know, I mean, that's a lot to put on Cedric's painting. But his paintings are about race, and they're about you know the kind of like, and and there is an emotional uh, response to to the world uh, in you know sort of contained in this painting. Um, on a vastly sort of different note, uh, some of the other- Well, paintings just, to,
0: that, just to interrupt though, didn't you have like, weren't you at an event? I was gonna- When all of that happened?
1: Yeah, I I, I was gonna sort of uh, follow up my visit to independent with like- the Oh, with
0: that, thing. okay.
1: Um, but, you know, just to stay with independent for a moment, some of the other things that stuck out to me, um, at Broadway gallery, there were these uh, very, Floral Vase Paintings by uh, Joe Ngo Ocean. I'm gonna have to look up Joe's, how to pronounce Joe's last name, but they just sort of um, all black canvases with the uh, sort of beautifully painted floral arrangements. that just kind of popped out. There wasn't, you know, like think Anne Craven, but with like a much better handle on the paint and not that kind of studied, you know, sort of bad uh, painting effect. And what was sort of notable about this is that the artist had switched sort of from sculpture to painting. This was like a new body of work. Um, And it just, they were loose, confidently handled. Um, And also again, like they provided a kind of retreat from some of this other kind of like really uh, in your face aggressive work that I would say would be summed up by like the work I didn't even write down the name of the booth, but Eric Parker had a booth that was like almost a replica of the color and, and, and exuberance and kind of like off-putting grossness uh, uh, of Kravitz and Weebly. But it was—it was—it turned out to be Eric Parker's work. I didn't, you know, it was like this, this like intense blast of color. I have a photo of it that we can put on the website, so you can get. He's us-
0: sort of yeah. He's sort of an interesting artist, like kaleidoscopic. At- Kaleidoscopic type stuff too, but like frenzied.
1: Yeah, frenzied, but I feel like it's, you know, it's sort of like uh, a a mannered Peter Saul, but without the politics, you know, like- Yes, yeah, yeah. uh, That work I can tolerate because there's, there's, you know, some real content to go along with. It's kind of in your face attitude. And with Parker's work, I just didn't feel it in that case. So like uh, encountering Joe's paintings was sort of like, ah, just this kind of relief. And they were gorgeous, you know, uh, we, my wife and I both agreed if we'd had, you know, extra $10,000 or whatever, we would have loved to have bought one and the gallerist laughed and was like, Yeah, this is awful, you know, I wish I could afford the work that I like too, you know. (laughs) 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 Um, You know, and then I don't really have a whole lot to say about the rest of the fair, there was sort of more bad painting than good. You know, the Max for Marlboro had his new booth, the ranch there, Um, Vito Schnabel's booth was kind of particularly bad uh, abstraction. Um,
0: Well, but also Vito is like, just sort of like a boys club, right? Like he's, he sort of feels like really out of step with the cultural moment more so than like other places.
1: Yeah, and you can just feel that kind of privilege to be able to do that with dad's work and money. Yeah, love you. You don't. He doesn't have to. I I don't know. You know, he's got enough money to do whatever the fuck he wants, and it's not always going to be good. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, and and again, I also sort of like, oh no, not Amy Feldman. You know, just these kind of like stultifyingly dull, you know, paintings where. I was like, oh, not these again. Just, I can't deal. You know, I, I know people love that work or somebody does, but um, there was some Amy Feldman and Vito Schnabel and like the ranch energy at the fair that uh, maybe it was the, the worst kind of energy and aesthetics and just kind of attitude it, it, it independent that always makes it a little bit, hmm. it's not the perfect fair. You know, there's still some bad stuff. Um, but to your question about like what uh, what led to the experience of crossing paths with like the, the 9-11 commemorative uh, celebration,
0: yes, please. I, I
1: left independent to go see a show called Parallel Constructions that was sort of organized by uh, Laura Poitras and it at least included Laura Poitras and Trevor Paglen and Michael Rakowitz and a number of, of really politically minded artists, right? So the thing that I knew I wouldn't see at the art fairs to a large part, you know, with the exception of maybe Michael's work, um, I had to go seek out somewhere else. And so this was at the St. George's Church Bar. And when I arrived, the, um, the, the show had been closed because everyone was expected to kind of walk up to Liberty Park where they were unveiling a new equestrian monument, you know, where it's like a, a soldier in full camo garb with a machine gun, astride a rearing horse you know, memorializing all of the US soldiers lost in Iraq and Afghanistan. And just a little bit away from that statue, Laura was interviewing and speaking with Seth Ackerman, who just published the book Reign of Terror. And so we're sitting there listening to Seth talk about US foreign policy, the media's response to the war on terror, how they sort of enabled I want to say, like, whitewashing of the U.S.'s war on terror by, you know, instead of saying torture, the media would say enhanced interrogation techniques. So these, this was basically oh, yeah, yeah. the substance of the discussion. But it, again, like, speaking to the kind of cognitive dissonance of this moment, you know, we're in Liberty Park. There's cops, firefighters, people walking around in suits with flowers there to memorialize 9/11 20 years later, and we're talking about a critical response to what the U.S. did after, and a small group of people. And at one point, Laura just said, hey, can you stop? We just need to stop talking and listen to the bagpipes and acknowledge that there is this dual thing happening, right, like a commemoration of a terrible event, but we're here to talk also about the response to that terrible event and how fucked up that was. Um, And that is how I found myself leaving St. George's Bar uh, after going out to see Trevor Paglin's piece, which was a projection of hundreds of of covert um, code names or operations in the Middle East uh, uh, projected on a building that was sort of parallel to the Twin Tower beams of light. And so that, being in that space with this kind of political art and political response uh, surrounded by basically like the believers uh, that everything that we've done uh, after 9-11 was good and knowing that like, significant numbers of firefighters and cops will not get vaccinated they're all out in the streets unmasked drinking you know, like I, I don't want to judge them uh you know for for drinking I just it was the it was like encountering a frat party where like things are sort of out of control and they're spilling down towards wherever this kind of memorial thing is happening and I'm like I am not part of this world at all.
0: I mean also no offense to the police officers but like they didn't really do that much that day that was like it was the firefighters like
1: <laughs> yeah and you know you know there's uh, I can hold respect for them and and know that you know that's their right to do that but it just the, the amount of tourists the amount of kind of like thing coming in 20 years later after we've just dealt with the withdrawal from Afghanistan where we we have to kind of look self critically at what What that that event really meant 20 years later we're dealing with the actual consequences of that and yet here is just this kind of like I couldn't tell if it was a party, you know, like. I it's hard to even call it uh, a a memorial, you know, Um, it was really sort of gross and and that was how I sort of ended my Saturday of like really encountering this kind of like uh, really split or you know divided world where it felt like just two separate places like the art fairs were happening over here and then you have the 9-11, you know, sort of like the celebration happening. Uh and and the twain shall not meet, you know, but yet they sort of did around this um parallel construction show. Just And then to, you went it, to
0: spring break like the next day, right?
1: I, I did spring break on Sunday. I took some time and then went, you know, Sunday late afternoon around five o'clock. So I'd,
0: be, I'd be curious to hear your experience of spring break because when I was there, um, so I went on Friday, um, as well. And on Thursday, like from what I could tell, like everybody was like, Oh, Friday is such a, it's a much better day. Like there's so many more people here to the extent that like, it really seemed like people were traumatized by Thursday Um, because the day before everybody was at the armory and like the armory was just like filled and like you know it really sounded like you could have like shot a cannon through the um the halls of spring break and nobody but the the people there would have noticed because there wasn't anybody there um so by the time I got there like everybody was just like so relieved that that people had shown up
1: Um, I I picked up on that vibe. Um, it was clear that, you know, they didn't have the big opening party on Thursday. There was no alcohol at the event this year, which sort of took away some of the literal aspect of spring break, which is drinking. Yeah. Now, you know, the, the Thursday with that normally would have just been a giant party, right. You know, like, and it would have gone on for hours. And so taking that away uh, and taking away that crowd, takes away a lot of what, you know, sort of made spring break, spring break, which is getting a lot of eyes in front of the work. And so Sunday, it was very quiet. There were definitely some people there. But you could go from room to room without really running into another viewer. And uh, certainly created opportunities to talk to people if you wanted to. There was also some, you know, robotic kind of explanations of work that I was like, it'd be better if you didn't do that. (laughs)
0: I mean it like at that point though that's Sunday they've been doing this for several days like I like my inclination would be to cut them a little bit of a a break on that like on Thursday I think I probably got like a few more fresh faces I would say that like I got there at I guess four a little bit before maybe and I didn't leave till they closed at seven. So, and I didn't even see the whole thing. Like I just ended up talking to so many people um, because it's that kind of affair um, that, uh, you know, I, I guess I would just say I had a really good time. Like yeah. it, was, it was really fun. Like, cause they'll only, they'll, like the only rule here is that you go and you talk about the art that's in the room. Um, And that I think also does something like if you're at all, like kind of socially awkward, which sometimes I can be if I'm not talking about anything other than art, like this, like removes all the awkwardness. There's only one rule. You go in there, you have to talk about the art. Like, great. (laughs) Got it.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree and I I think one of the things about Spring Break that's always nice is that the feelings of like commercialization around art that kind of come with Armory or like, you know, more established galleries or even galleries uh, showing the work is that usually you're dealing with like a curator and artists. There's less galleries, you know, presenting the work and that that can be really nice to know that there's like uh, less of a kind of abstract relationship of of financialization and commodification between you and the work in the sense that like, there's not a middle person who's just like, my job is to sell work here. You know, in most cases, it's an artist sitting in the booth or a curator representing the interests of the artist, And so that tends to make it like, I don't know, there's a more sort of direct experience. So when you're talking about the work, it does make that easier, you know, like there's somebody who's directly they're, they're connected to the work. You know through other interests just other than selling at the same time that sense of not having a lot of people there um and and maybe not having the same opportunities to sell the work uh i could kind of feel it there was a bit of like anxiety sort of running through the thing like there aren't the same amount of people, and maybe not the same opportunities and that you know the the artists here might need this money a little bit more than some of their peers at armory or something, you know, um, it, it, you know, it, it, it's
0: funny. Cause like, I, I really did assume that not tons of stuff. Like I, I assume that stuff sells at spring break because otherwise how would spring break be able to get by? So for those of you who don't know the model is that um any work that sells, I think you have to give the fair, what is it, 20 or 30 percent of the sale. Like that, yeah. Um, and then the rest gets split between the artist and um and the curator. So the, normally I think the curator takes a, a slightly smaller percentage. Um but again, you know, these things get worked out differently all the time. Um getting back to the idea that the, um, that this fair is, is one that like, I just didn't assume that there was a lot being sold at the fair and that part of the um, appeal, because like the thing is, is that it doesn't cost that much to, um, to actually participate. Like there's a base fee that you pay, it might be $500 or something like that. And then after that, um, it's, you know, there's the percentage for sales, but you're not out, you're not laying out the huge sums of money that you would at a different fair where there is the expectation of sales. Yeah, I, I,
1: I would never, so, you know, we talked about this earlier and I think you made a good point that you can go on to any of the galleries, um, any of the booths at the space, you know, look at a QR code on your phone, go right to a page that tells you how much is this work, is it sold or not? And yeah. that, you know, like there's a level of transparency to that where uh, some of the galleries that I did look at, I was able to see that there were sales, you know, at some of the booths who had sold what. Um, I didn't have to sort of wonder about that. I could see that. And I actually came across the booth on Sunday night and I won't uh, uh, out the people, but there was a small, um, violation of the no alcohol policy because the artist was celebrating the sale of a painting, which, you know, uh, the artist said flat out, you know, allowed them to break even and that now things were covered and it was gonna be a better Monday, right? And so, you know, I just, I'm, I'm still thinking about the kind of like financial reality and that knowing that, you know, most of the people in the room were going to directly receive a lot of the money of the sales as opposed to, Having to split it 50-50 with a gallery, or there's somebody who's there whose salary is being paid. <laughs> you know, uh, when a lot of this, like the only way those artists and curators are getting paid uh for their time and energy is if they sell some work in that fair. It's not like they're getting subsidized by a New York City artist grant, you know, to to host the fair.
0: Yeah. I mean, my hope is that this is that they do sell stuff. And like um, you know, when I was there on Friday, I talked to somebody who'd sold an NFT, um, which of course was complicated because like um, everything that gets sold, um, normally you have to go through the website um, so that there's a record of that. And then with the NFTs, there's um, the platform gets a percentage and then there's already standards um, for splits and things like that. So like All that stuff had to be figured out.
1: Mm -hmm. So what did you see? What stood out to you um, on your tour of spring break? I have a a relatively short list. Um,
0: Well, so I have, um, yeah, I have a short list too, um, which is not to say that I uh, have an actual short list, but um, for the purposes of this podcast, uh, which is already quite long. (laughs) <laughs> this what. Yeah,
1: I thought we would be quick.
0: <laughs> yeah. This was another podcast, people, where we were like, this one's only gonna be an hour.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, 45 minutes even. Anyway, guy Richard Smith. Um, one of the last booths I saw, um, really fun. He uh has been making these paintings that are like fairly large scale. I don't know if I would guess like like 40 by 40, 50 by 50 um, kind of cartoon. New Yorker-like cartoons with um, a colored background. So they might be yellow or purple. Um, the ones that I liked best tended to be um, insider art world jokes. Um, but like my favorite was my work is in, like it was two guys talking, two white guys. Um, and I like my the caption underneath was, my work is an exploration of white male mediocrity, but it only makes its point if it
1: sells. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I mean, this is uh, coming out of a long tradition of Guy's work of kind of like investigating other fields of cultural activity and presenting it as art. So to give the listeners a little bit of backstory on this, Guy has been submitting cartoons to the New Yorker at a clip of like seven or eight a week, Um, trying to get published in the new yorker and the paintings are based on his his not only learning how to draw the cartoons but to kind of like get at um the the kind of right message for the new yorker so the ones that he sends to the new yorker are totally like middle of the road non-art world like cultural critiques right or just you know witty puns but the ones he chose for spring break were very much about the art world and much more edgy and those are the ones he posts on instagram and one of the things that's really funny is people on instagram are like how, how do you think you're ever going to get you know published in the new yorker with these kind of fucked up art world new yorker cartoons and he's like no 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 wait wait those are the ones i share with you here and i don't submit those to the new yorker uh so it's just it was really interesting to see him sort of take this other thing like in the past he's made music videos he has a band called maxi gal and play cole and they played like joe's pub i mean it's sort of like he straddles uh almost a kind of like occupational i hate to say realism but like you know he'll put together a band uh do shows people think it's a real rock band but he's like it's also an art project and so this is like another uh you know extension of that kind of pra- uh, part of guy's practice which i also you know- I saw too
0: that was a fantastic just context for his work. Um, he had this piece that was like, uh, again, like sort of two guys talking um, that had uh, in front of a sculpture that was like a, a little mini bronze or whatever it was, butt plug um, and the caption under underneath was, um, can you believe I found this priceless Paul McCarthy sculpture abandoned under a park bench? <laughs> um, which I thought it was really funny because like there was, I, I think also recently there was a Paul McCarthy, like inflatable turd that had gotten loose and, um, had, this was somewhere in Europe and like, I don't know, had landed on a tent or I, I don't remember exactly what happened, but it was very funny. Um, but in any event, he had told me that they, um, he had submitted that to hyperallergic and Harag, the editor there, was like, Oh my God, this is funny. I'll, I'll totally run it. And then he ran it by like a bunch of the uh, like Zoomer um, editors that he had. And they were all like, What's this mean? <laughs> 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 and he got it.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. So. Uh, so anyway, his booth was pretty good. I know you I, I know you. Uh, you like Jennifer Catron and Paul Outlaw's booth. Um, I, I thought that was pretty good too. You know, actually, Jen and
1: Paul's piece was the last, my last absolute last stop was at, um, a booth curated by Nicholas Cueva that had like an early Jerry Saltz work. And I, I love Nick. Um, I think he's always puts together a really eclectic and interesting booth at spring break. But the Jerry, I was like, "Eh, uh, you know, I don't really want to end this on Jerry. And uh, Jen and Paul's piece, the sort of giant ham being sliced by a knife, uh, had been shut down for the day. And so that
0: that actually I had the same experience because Nicholas Cueva was my very last booth, even though it was kind of guys. Um, And um, so I he um, Nick showed me um, Jen and Paul's piece, but it was off.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And they weren't going to, he, he wasn't, I guess it had enough technical difficulties with the pulley system that he didn't want to be responsible for restarting it, particularly without like Magda's gallery sitter being present. Um, you know, and I, I always appreciate, you know, how Jen and Paul sort of put on these kind of spectacles of like, is this in good or bad taste? You know, just like the idea of being a ham, you know, in, in, in a fair that, if I had one sort of criticism of spring break this year is that by giving it a medieval theme, it gave license to a lot of artists to put together altars. And I could go a full couple of years without ever seeing another altar. I'm, I, the, the, the only altar that I want to reference really is uh, the, the booth curated by M. Charlene Stevens uh, called Chapel. Like that's about Yeah, cool. yeah.
0: With Sophie Kahn and yeah.
1: Colette, Robbins. Colette Robinson. I I mean so so yeah. I like there were two booths that I thought were really well curated with art that I really responded to. And Chapel was you know the 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 second one I encountered. And um like one of the things I think about another thing at spring break that tends to happen is people decorate the booths with like wallpaper. They kind of create installations that in most cases are superfluous, just not necessary. They're like a thing that they noticed happening at the fair and they're gonna do it. Um, there, there was one installation by a non-binary artist kind of celebrating non-binary identity that had like a workout room that was like kind of fur covered and it made sense and yes. I'm like, uh, I apologize for not having the artist's name in front of me, but I thought that was like, okay, I can I think that's an important reason for that room to be decorated. Most of them, I'm like, you just decorated it because it like is cool or something. You know, it made me uh, really appreciate the fact that the the wallpaper in chapel was of the wireframes, of the three d sculptures. And that, you know the sculptures that were presented were also representations of the kind of like video animations that were present. And it was just the kind of interconnected relationship of. The digital and analog states of the work that I thought worked as an overall excellent kind of installation, against some of the other ones that are maybe trying to put together an atmosphere or a kind of attitude that um, I could do without as well. You know, to a certain uh, degree, and I, I think there was a you know, it's become something of a kind of trope at Spring Break is that you're going to see a lot of decorated rooms uh, for the art.
0: Yeah, you know, I th- so the thing the thing about that um that trope like sometimes I find really annoying you know because I'm like well the art like just it's not quite there yet and so in order to kind of dress it up we have this wallpaper we have this whole installation and all the rest but I started to wonder whether maybe I wasn't being generous enough with that that like well that was sort of a presentation device it's also like also just part of um the growth of of that artist that that may be where they start but it maybe is not where they end i mean hopefully i i haven't really been able to track enough of this to be to to know but like my my hope is that you know a couple years down the line they're not going to need the the kind of support structure of like these decorated walls and all the rest and hopefully you know, the booze like chapel, um, with Colette and, um, Sophie's work and Charlene curating it, like, and the way that everything sort of that, like that armature and the wallpaper and then in the, in the videos itself, like everything sort of relating to each other, um, is instructional, um, in some way, you know, I think The thing I liked about it is that I thought the themes too were really relevant. Like the fragility of the human body Mm -hmm. comes up a lot in these like 3d sculptures where there's like only kind of half a face or like a, you know, this, the skeleton is only partially there. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a kind of historical erasure um, that I think also kind of speaks to this like double-sided sword that's connected to um, um, our ideas about um, digital life, where on the one hand, we think that nothing is permanent, but on the other thing, on the other hand, we think that we have everything forever. <laughs> and like they're two like completely different views of our shit. Online mm-hmm. that exists at the it at the same time and they're contradictory but and we just sort of live with them and I thought that that was like kind of tied up in a lot of that um, work and I mean of course like also there's like not a lot of good news for women and their bodies right um, and a yes. presentation
1: of two women artists you know female curator um, it it did one of the things that I think. I love about spring break is that I was not as familiar with Sophie and Colette's work, and it's work that I want to, you know, spend more time learning about and seeing and getting deeper into what that that what they're presenting with the work. And you know, it that I think is a it was a really strong booth, and it made a case for the work. And you know, I was on like a kind of like, I'm going to see all of these booths, hell or high water, and sort of came in. Took it in, uh, made sure I documented it, and then you know, like store it for later, and hopefully can kind of come back and you know uh, learn more about their practice and how the works sort of um, uh, how they work individually as artists as well. Um, but I think it was it was it was a fantastic presentation of the work and very memorable. So you know, I think it yeah,
0: really- I probably spent like forty five minutes in the booth just talking to them about the work and like you know other stuff as that stuff happens. I mean, I think that's probably why I I can't remember the name of the booth and that's probably for the better, but like next door to them, there was a, a gallery from Jersey City that was like full on installation altar. They had like this selfie chamber, like all the rest in that, like, um, and also like addition candles um, where I think like the work maybe was not quite as developed um, conceptually, but. Um, but they also had a woman there who I spent fair amount of time talking to um, about her like custom tarot deck that she had made yeah, and how I like
1: that. yeah yeah
0: um, which was like if I knew anything about tarot and cared about it like maybe I would <laughs> buy that
1: <laughs> right
0: but. I mean, cause it, it it really was beautiful, but like she, I mean, she clearly had put a lot of thought into, into that at least. Um, you know, I think she's an amateur tarot person, but, um, you know, one of the booths, I don't know if you saw this, Angie Waller, um, had a, a booth of, um, fact-checking, um, advertisements, uh, that I thought were really cool. Um, so basically like, um, time magazine, which I think was just known as time at the, at the time, excuse me, um, had, uh, they were the first people to employ fact checkers. And they ran an ad in the paper that was like, um, advertising that their um, news was more factually ac- accurate than any other news because they actually had fact checkers. And that advertising campaign was so successful that eventually all the other news networks um, got fact checkers because it proved that they were more reliable. Um, and so people would, would seek out that news. Um, but what was interesting is you see this progression of ads and the ads themselves. Um, I can't remember what was in them, but the ads themselves like get less factual <laughs> <laughs> as they go on um and there's actually um a book um that she had produced called outliers which was a history of fact checking um uh, and like sort of had like stats and things like that so i actually purchased that because my my partner is a, a, a fact checker so
1: that work seems incredibly relevant i i think that may have been a show i kind of looked in and at that point Textually dense work was also something that I did not spend as much time with, um, which you know is my loss. But I'm glad you you spent time with it, and you know, um, I look forward to kind of like checking that out. So I think it sounds like a really great project.
0: It w- it would have be- it it was one of those moves where like the walls were black and there was just text on in these black frames. So. <laughs> Yeah, it definitely had to be in a certain mindset to uh, to really take away a lot. Right.
1: The the other um, one of the booths that I, I actually kind of started with it by going starting on the eleventh floor and going down and turning I guess right instead of left to to begin my my journey through it. But um, was gather rusted satellites, and that was a booth curated by Amanda N- uh, Needham, and it featured the work of. Um, Kyle Hittmeyer and Tristan Lansdowne. And I should say, I, I met Kyle and Amanda when I was a visiting artist at RISD. And what almost confused me at first is when I had seen Kyle's work early on, he was doing um, these kind of like representations of almost fascist architecture as sort of digital models and sort of making work about power. And the artist Tristan Lansdowne, um, his work was of this kind of you know strange architecture that I initially thought was maybe Kyle's work. Um, But Kyle was presenting a series of kind of like uh, landscape paintings of like the Cayman Islands, uh, basically where representations of where money is stored offshore. And then uh, he had painted a series of post-it notes that sort of represent a kind of paper trail of trying to kind of follow the money. And of course, anyone doing any kind of like trompe l'oeil painting of paper and notes sort of, you know, I'm like always curious to see uh, but I, you know, getting to see them in person, you know, Kyle's new work uh, is sort of like a kind of conceptual "follow the money" uh, project was really interesting, and they were also really sort of beautiful objects, and it kind of represented, I think, a sort of significant change, or at least this project had a different resolution than some of his other work. And I found it interesting that Amanda was able to sort of like pair him with another artist whose work almost looked like something that maybe Kyle, you know, another. Another way of representing some of the ideas that Kyle's work was exploring previously, uh, and so I had not seen Tristan's work before. And you know, they were also really sort of beautiful and uncanny paintings of a kind of architecture that um, I, you know, couldn't quite place. You know, but it felt um, also sort of like addressing issues of like you know, kind of fascist architecture or some sort of kind of power dynamic in that way. Um, and you know, I thought that it was it was mature work, and that um, it worked really well together. And you know, in some way, I think what di- you know the distinction I could make between like Charlene's booth or uh, Charlene Stevens' booth and, and Amanda's is that the strength of a, the Amanda's booth that she put together was really the artist's work, and it wasn't necessarily there wasn't like a, a, a you know like a curatorial vision um, of of how the artist. Go together in the same way that I think, like Charlene's booth, because of the overall installation and uh, the way the works were sort of set up. Um, I don't know. I just felt like you know the chapel booth was sort of uh, a more experimental curatorial project and realized that way through the installation. And Amanda's was a well-curated show, to artist work that made sense together, and that was the extent of like you know mm. involvement. Um, And I know that Amanda and and Kyle, you know, are longtime sort of friends. I don't know if they are um, partners in life or just work, but you know, there's a sort of connection there. And that's also one of the interesting things about Spring Break is what constitutes a curator versus an artist curating their friends or, you know, something like that. Um, Well,
0: and I think the interesting, I mean, you know, the chapel booth, one of the things that is so impressive about it is that um, this was put together basically in a month because like the way that spring break is structured is that they don't really know whether they have the contract, um, you know, until a month or two before the actual fair takes place. So they have to have an application process and selection, and then you don't have that much time to put things together. So that, I mean, I think that can account for things sometimes sort of, Um, not feeling that carefully curated um, because it's really difficult to do that in that short period of time. Although, you know, for an art fair, like how much careful curating often goes on anyway.
1: Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to, um, I don't want to insult Amanda's curation of that booth in any way. I just think that there's a distinction between a booth that's really strong because of just the works that are presented, and then there's curators who bring a kind of like vision to how these works yes. operate and relate to another, and and that there's you know like a kind of another layer of like the curator's project about the choice and selection of this work. And I think Amanda's you know choice of bringing together Kyle and Tristan was really smart. But it was really the strength of the work that kind of like drew me to that booth, and so those were two of the strongest booths, you know, and kind of speak to that that what makes Spring Break unique is again it's not just a gallery trotting out their artists; these are proposed projects, right? By that require a curator to kind of step in, uh, and so it's not just artists presenting their work, you know. Um, And so those were two things that although
0: I mean it kind of is, but a lot of times. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, I guess, you know, and, and uh, but, you know, I think, I guess, you know, part of the question is, why is that necessary? And to some degree, is it to prevent it from being like a kind of, um, maybe just to introduce another layer of like mediation and selectivity that it's not just the artist saying, I think this is good, I'm going to present it, but there's somebody else there in communication with about what is being presented, um thinking about how to think about it curatorially and having someone who's not um who's who's involved and engaged in it but not the artist themselves that there's a layer of like call it objectivity (laughs) (laughs) like i trust that this person uh is thinking about this work um you know and, and also believes in it so what we're i at this point mostly what my shortlist includes are uh, some individual artists um, whose work I responded to in the booths.
0: Yeah.
1: Lauren uh, Erdrich's work, uh, particularly this painting, Me and You at the End of the World in Libby Rosa and Chris Lucius's booth, um, was an example of this kind of like muted, stained, and otherwise toned down paintings um, that I, I was sort of like responding to wherever I found them. Um, in, in all of the fairs. And it was sort this kind of like weird figuration again that kind of pushed into like more abstract environments. And um, another another artist really quickly was Sam Bornstein, um, Born, Born Setons, uh, Barbed Wire Consultants. This is another kind of painting that, that did this for me. And one of the reasons why it stood out is it was like in, in conversation with like these really graphic works by an artist named uh, Ari Don. And that work was like super flat, geometric, stylized, kind of graphic work. And that that stuff, you know, just like was very sort of exuberant. And that didn't reach me at all. It was the kind of stuff that repelled me a little bit. But uh, so Sam's work really sort of contrasted with that. And that was in uh, Leonard Rydstein's booth uh, 116, I think. was also into willow Wasserman's paintings that were in Patrick Mahondro's booth one one Seven um, and his whole like booth had this kind of like kind of like tangential material connections, but Wasserman's paintings were like super ethereal next to some of the kind of more uh, hard edged there was literally like just like a chair in the room at one you know one of the pieces um, i I also thought that James Rasko's material explorations in Alonso where Vara's booth, 1012, was really interesting. There were these kind of trompe l'oeil murals somewhere, uh, again, like kind of post-it note paper, uh, very sort of fragile configurations against these sort of um, trompe l'oeil murals almost that were like really highly rendered. And there was a, a interesting contrast between like the artist's work and the kind of really strong range there. And, uh, you know, I may have already thrown altars under the bus, but in terms of sculpture, I thought Tammy Rubin's porcelain sculptures, uh, at rivalry projects um, were really strong. And, you know, she was showing those sculptures alongside Steve uh, Locke's quilts, which were like an interesting contrast because Tammy's were these sort of a specific, things that could be read as clan hoods or African masks, but they were also just funnels and bowls that had a kind of like, uh, adornment on the surface of them and they were all they're all black presented on the shelf and Steve's work you know went very specific, there was a, a quilted piece called The Guardian depicting john Lewis, um, and so the two of those things I thought worked really well together. Um, and you know I, I definitely liked guys work, I think, like in terms of talking to people I spent the most time chatting with Chris bores and guy Richard Smith um about the experience of the fair and their experience as artists and curators are sort of working uh in the fair and that that is my my short list of of work that i saw
0: so well, i actually didn't i made a list of booths i didn't make a list of individual artworks um but i will add to your um individual artworks while we're talking about it because we mentioned nicholas cueva and his booth Um, I don't know if you saw this, but in the back of his, in the back of the booth, he had this like little tiny frog um, that he's told me he had been curating for curating. He had been sculpting for like a year. Um, And the frog was on this like little bronze pedestal and like stuck in its mouth was this cross that was adorned with a USB drive at the, at the bottom. And there was something sort of, um, I guess I can't look at frogs anymore and the internet and not think of peppy, even though this like was not (laughs) at all like shaped in that way, but that was sort of the connotation. And I just sort of thought like, like this small piece of, where like this tech religion is killing, um, a frog, like a sort of random figure, but also maybe something like, something I where symbols can be like mean one thing and then be completely transformed in another online. Like there was something about that, that, um, you know, really struck me, um, and felt appropriate for, um, an art space. So that that would be my addition to to your artwork. Um I do feel like it may be time to uh finish our podcast.
1: So. <laughs> so what I what I would encourage you to do is um you know post the list of galleries or booths um at spring break, you know, on on the podcast website so that you know people can check it out because the works um will still be available for six months through spring break. And so anything we can do to potentially help an artist sell (laughs) some of this work, I think could be really useful in this kind of post-pandemic, not post-pandemic, but the Delta portion of our pandemic experience.
0: Absolutely, so we'll have um, all that stuff on on the blog so that you can find that um, and in the show notes. So if you are getting, Um, your podcast through Spotify or through um, Apple Podcasts, both of which um, Carrie explained me, you will be able to find those links there. Um, So take a look at them if you haven't already. Um, And if you feel like buying something, um, tell us what you purchased.
1: Yeah, we'd love to know. Well, thank you, Patty. It was great to uh, catch up and talk through some of our our ambivalence and the contradictions that we experienced you know sort of with the return of art fairs into our lives
0: likewise all right until next time